This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, who were the wildest team owners? Hello, welcome back to Over and Back. I am Jason, with me as usual is Rich, and we are talking about the wild and craziest team owners in the NBA and the ABA of the 1970s. Yeah, I don't know if I can decide which one is the... I know that we our, our goal with this is to answer this question, but this is going to be a tough one. <laughs> There's a lot of contenders here. We'll, we'll get to All it, right. but... Uh, yeah, it's obviously, you know, one of the things about this decade is, you know, with the uh, with the expansion and with, you know, all of the um, the new owners that are being brought in that we've talked about in other shows, uh, you're just getting new you're, you're getting new blood to this, uh, you know, new money, as they call it, to uh, this league. And it leads to some owners who are um, not necessarily like the, you know, the conservative types that were around in the 50s and 60s who were um you know, mostly guys who the team was their main business rather than being in addition to other businesses. Uh, so this just adds a, a whole new dimension. In the ABA, there's very much this, you know, they're they're kind of letting almost anybody, you know, who has the money get a team. They're not really <laughs> that discerning about uh, who the ownership group is. So um, it, it leads to some eccentric ones. I, I think the craziest stories are probably in the ABA, but the NBA, some of those owners give them a... No, they do pretty good, too. Yeah. yeah, the NBA does a pretty good job themselves. Uh, we'll start with the Dale Chaparrells, which isn't one particular guy. It's kind of an ownership group, uh, but they had their uh, their wildness as well. Uh, they were known for their vast wealth, uh, their group, uh, which included f- uh, future mayor of Dallas, Bob Folsom. They were uh, estimated to be around uh, a worth of about $480 million to $750 million. So they were definitely a, a very valuable team, but not ran very well. Uh, this predates the 70s by a little bit, but it's still a very great story in uh, Terry Pluto's Loose Balls. Uh, Max Williams, who was Dallas's GM at that time, he couldn't uh, attend the draft, so he gave Roland Spieth, who was uh, one of Dallas's owners, this is prior to the Bob uh, Folsom ownership group, but but related uh, in some way. He, so he gave them... Um, he gave him his draft sheet and said, you know, this is an alphabetical list uh, of guys, you know, here, you know, just different stuff of, okay, here's guys that I like, here's this sort of stuff. Well, here's the quote from Loose Balls, and this is the story as told by Max Williams. Um, 
So, Bob, uh, so Roland Smith, so it comes to Max Williams. He said, well, we had our draft. Uh, Max says, I said, what are you talking about? It happened so quickly. They just said the draft was tomorrow. I couldn't find you, but it took, uh, but I took your list along. Of course, the reason Spieth went by himself is that he didn't want to spend the money to take me along, too. This is Max Williams, of course, telling the story. I said, you should have taken me. You don't know anything about these players. And he said, I got the first five guys on your list. I said, that wasn't a talent list. That was a list of players in alphabetical order. And he said, oh. So he gave him a list of guys in alphabetical order. This guy assumed it was a list of talent. And so the first pick of the Dallas Chaparrales was Matt H. from Michigan State. That's spelled A-I-T-C-H. Next pick was Jim Burns, followed by Gary Gray. Pat Riley jumps in there. He's a little bit of an interesting one. Uh, Jamie Thompson, Paul uh, Breteris, I believe it is, Jeff Finch, uh, Ted Manning, Dwayne Heckman, Gilbert McDowell, Jerry Southwood, and Tom Storm. But... uh, None of those guys really turn out to do anything at Salal. Of, of those picks, only Jim Burns, who uh, was the second pick, uh, he played 36 games uh, and averaged 4.4 points per game for Dallas. Uh, Burns was also drafted by the Chicago Bulls in the fourth round of the NBA draft, so he's not completely out there. He's, he's maybe somewhat of a talent, more so than the rest of these guys. Nobody else on that list uh, played anything significant for Dallas. So, yeah, the alphabetical uh, draft was not a success. No, so. not so much. Not so much. So another one, and... Um uh, we talked about this a little bit um, with Raphael. I talked with him when we were talking about the uh, uh, about some of the trades. Uh, Earl Foreman, the owner of the Virginia Squires, was very much known for selling off his players. And um, he was a member of the ownership group, the main owner, that purchased the Oakland Opes, who, who were about to fall deep into bankruptcy, owned by Pat Boone in 69. But he came in, and they paid $2.6 million for the team, moved it to uh, D.C., where it became the Washington Capitals. Uh, didn't work out so well there, so then they moved to Virginia for the uh, next season. And um, so immediately they had to trade Warren Armstrong, later Warren Jabali, to the uh, Kentucky Colonels for a draft pick in cash. And then he sold Rick Barry to the New York Nets. Um, it was reported at $250,000, but um, I think it was later actually uh, a, a relatively small amount of money, like $25,000 or something. It was, it was reported as a larger sum because he wanted to kind of save face, but basically Barry didn't want to be there, and he had to kind of get out of it. So, um, And Barry even later said like he would have um, bought out his contract for a larger amount of that, but they wanted to keep Barry in the ABI, understandably. Um then uh, the Squires did pretty well, though. They in um, you know they they stuck around. Um, um, so even without Rick Barry, the Squires finished in first in the East, uh, fifty five and twenty nine, and they even did pretty well in the playoffs. They beat the Nets four games to two, um, beating um, Rick Barry, in fact. But they lost in the Eastern Division Finals to the Colonels, and then afterward they signed Julius Irving to a, a four year, five hundred thousand dollar contract. Uh, Irving was you know, he was a good college star at UMass, but was not. A significant name at that time um you know, he was from a smaller school and was not necessarily that well known in the league but he had been scouted by the um but by the squires and and they, and they liked him and um so they they did pretty well in the in the postseason they but they ended up losing the um seven game eastern division finals to the uh, nets four games to three uh rick barry uh team beating them and then uh 73 they struggled a little bit um they just didn't really have much depth around uh, Julius. And also Julius had tried to jump to the Atlanta Hawks in the um, off season between uh, 72 and 73 off seasons, which we'll get into more in a different episode. But um, even so Foreman had added George Gervin to the Squires roster, which had two future hall of famers on the same team. But um, they traded Irving and Willie Sojourner to the Nets for George Carter and uh, $1 million. 
And then later on, they would sell Sven Nader to the uh, Spurs for $300,000. So they kept finding this great talent and then um, and then trading. Although Nader had played for UCLA, although he had been a backup to Bill Walton, so he hadn't gotten a whole lot of time. And then um, and we talked about this a little bit in the, uh, in the NBA Trades Contest, but um, Gervin was actually traded to the Spurs for $225,000, but they held off the deal so that Gervin could play for the Squires at the All-Star game, which the Squires hosted, and then um, and, and then the trade was consummated afterward. Foreman actually tried to get out of the trade, but eventually the uh, the Spurs insisted and everyone relented, and they they kept uh, Gervin, who, of course, you know would be the franchise player for them for the next decade. And uh, the team came to an end, like I said, just, just about a month before the NBA-ABA merger because they were unable to pay a $75,000 league assessment. So they were out of the $3 million that the ABA teams got for being bought out or, you know, for being part of the merger or, you know, even, of course, the um, the greater deal that the uh, Sonos brothers were able to get that we talked about before. Um, however, you know... Um, he was able to. Uh, he did bounce back a little bit at Foreman. He created the. He helped create the Major League Indoor Soccer League, which is actually quite a. Um, did was a very brief sensation in the late. It stayed 70s. around, yeah. It stayed around for a long time too. I mean, people kind of forget how long that league was around. But yeah, like you're saying, it was kind of. A yeah, big it, deal for it, it, it was very popular for a few years uh, in the late seventies, and then kind of you know fell apart. But. Um, yeah, so he was the commissioner of that league for seven years, and, uh, and it stuck around. So you know, uh, he 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 managed to manage to do better in different sports. He's another guy who's a very good, uh, very good storyteller in loose balls and enjoyable to uh, sure. to your talk. Uh, now we'll move on to Charlie Finley uh, in Memphis. Uh, you might know the name if you're a baseball fan. He was the eccentric owner of the Oakland Athletics, a very successful Oakland Athletic team that all hated him because he was a penny pincher. Uh, and yeah, he's kind of the same thing here uh, as well. In 1970, he uh, purchased the Memphis Pros uh, of the ABA to accentuate the new direction of the team. Uh, he held a special contest to find a better nickname. So uh, over 20,000 postcards were received during the course of the contest, and the winner collected a $2,500 prize uh, for coming up with the nickname. Uh, the nickname that won was the Tams, and Finley thought this nickname was important, uh, or was was appropriate rather, uh, because the Memphis franchise supposedly had fans in both ten- or in, in Tennessee, Arkansas, and Mississippi. So you got the Tams, makes a lot of sense. Finley uh, then quickly uh, wanted to make the team the most colorful in the league, and that was something that he was always very good about doing in the MLB as well. Uh, so the logo became a, a kind of a green, white, gold, weird color that that that's. You know, a little like his Oakland Athletics team, but kind of a little bit more different. Um, uh, he hired uh, recently retired Kentucky Wildcats basketball coach Adolph Rupp as team president. Uh, and then, of course, as Finley was wont to do, he ran it on a shoestring budget. And after the first season, he sold the team and returned to baseball. So <laughs> it was uh, interesting stuff. A few other little stories of him uh, in the middle of all the losing and cost cutting. He was not good, by the way. Uh, Finley took a bizarre step of offering all the Tams players, coaches and male front office personnel a special $300 bonus. To grow a mustache. He had taken the same approach uh, with the uh, Oakland A's uh, famously. And, you know, Raleigh Fingers was known for his handlebar mustache and other guys. Uh, several players took the offer very seriously, grew full mustaches, and hopefully got the promised bonuses out of Finley. But mm, a lot of dubious claims that he never paid anybody. Uh, Finley did not bother to attend any games, by the way, during uh, the Tam's second season. He would sometimes go uh, weeks without communicating with the coach, who was Butch uh, Van Brennikoff about roster moves and team business. He was just kind of out of sight, out of mind. Uh, he did also implement some cost-cutting measures. For example, he took the approach of eliminating the publication of game programs. Uh, TAM fans had to make up their own typed lineup sheets. Um, 
and the Memphis fans, uh, sensing the futility of the entire operation, stayed away in droves, and the lack of attendance late in the season approached lows only previously seen in the ABA by the Houston Mavericks. And then, of course, as I mentioned, that was it for Finley, who got out uh, as quick as possible. So yeah, and the team actually uh, shut down uh, completely, and you know, basically was about to fold, and then was sort of saved by um, Mike Storen, who had been the ABA commissioner and who had mm-hmm. been the front office in in uh, for the Pacers and the Colonels, and you know, they tried to make it go, but that didn't work out a whole lot better, unfortunately. But, um, uh, yeah, there's one good story. I think it was Charlie Williams who told the story about how you know, he's trying to negotiate a contract with Charlie Finley. And then he's going in. Uh, you know, they're supposed to have lunch together. And he's going in and, like, Charlie Finley's, like, heating up the soup and is, like, this hot plate. And he's like, oh, you know, he must not have, you know, have very much with, you know, if, if he's having to deal with this. So he ended up accepting a lesser amount, finding out later that was just sort of a trick that Finley liked to, to, to you know, <laughs> not, not pay him, you know, be, be cheap. Uh. So. Charlie, it's a good one though. I like yeah. that. I might, so, so next, I use it. I'm going mortgage payment. Yeah, there you go. Yes, you just get out, get a lot. <laughs> I bring a soup. cup of ramen. They won't. Yeah. They won't make. They, won't, they want to make me have to pay, right? We're closing your house. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, uh, so John Y. Brown, uh, the owner of the Kentucky Colonels. I'm in no danger, by the way. So don't. I mean, you can send money if you I'm want, sorry? but I'm in no danger of. I, I was just telling people I am in no danger okay. of uh, foreclosing on my home. But if people want to send me money or me or Jay's money, that's fine. But just to just let you know, I'm not. In, All right, in fair danger, enough. So. You know, um, <laughs> support our sponsors. Um, so, uh, John White Brown of the Kentucky Colonels, he, um, he was able to, uh, the the team was about to be, uh, sold to a group from Cincinnati, but then he ended up uh, purchasing the, um, the window cherries interest from the group really to keep the team from there. And then he put his wife and a 10 woman board directors in charge of the team, which actually they, they launched an effective ticket selling campaign across the state, actually tripled ticket sales for the 74 season, doubled attendance. And, um, however, the, um, Colonel's general manager, Mike Storm, who we just, who we just mentioned, uh, felt that he was, he felt that, you know, he really couldn't answer to this and this was unacceptable and that he thought that Brown was going to run the team his way. Left the team as a result, and then two months later, he became the uh, became the ABA League commissioner. So, um, and his, he said he owned the team, and if he wanted to run it, he'd run it. Since I can't work under those conditions, I decided to quit. Uh, then the head coach uh, Joe Mullaney followed soon after, saying he was, Brown was going to be too meddlesome in personnel decisions. And um, Babe McCarthy lasted only one season as Mullaney's replacement, and in '75, Brown hired Huey Brown as head coach. The Team won the ABA championship the following year, although things did not go well between Brown between the two Browns and uh, Hubert Brown was out of there as well. Um, yeah, the, the, the Colonels were a effective team in the late seventies, but were always kind of you know one thing over getting over the hump. They finally did when they won the championship with Hubie as their um, as their head coach in um, in the seventy five season. Um, and then, although he'd been hailed as a hero for you know, saving the Colonels and uh, bringing the championship, he then was publicly criticized because um, they, after the championship, they sold the rights to Dan Issel in a cost-saving move. And um, and then at the end of the year, he accepted a three million dollar offer to fold the team rather than paying three million to join the NBA. And then later bought a uh, Buffalo Braves team for, I believe, $500,000. So made a pretty good deal for himself. But, you know, the um, people of Louisville otherwise might have an NBA team today if he had not decided to do that. So, 
Mm-hmm. And also, he's a uh, uh, was a, an executive with the Kentucky Fried Chicken Corporation as well. Yes. So that's yeah. Uh, or, or, that would was help, he an executive? So. He might have actually been the owner. He was later the governor. I think. Oh no, he's the owner. Yeah, yeah correct. He was no, later sorry, the governor yeah, yeah. of uh, Kentucky as well. So he was right. Yeah, yeah. He, he was a prominent person, um, and would later um, after getting the Braves, of course, to be the famous um, the, the Braves <laughs> uh, who became the Clippers and Celtics franchise swap that we talked about in previous episodes. But um, he he was he would end up being the owner of the Celtics for a while and would clash with Red Auerbach and eventually would sell the uh, Celtics. I'm sure for a hefty profit. So, uh, all right. Next on our list, Dr. Lenny Bloom of the San Diego Conquistadors. Yes, he is a part-time orthodontist and a full-time operator of the San Diego Conquistadors, which is fantastic. I, I want I want a current NBA owner to also do orthodontist work on the side. That would be incredible. Um, yeah, it was it was it was not great. Uh, Leonard Bloom. I uh, had a personality conflict with Peter Graham, who was the proprietor of the city's. Uh, San Diego's their brand new $14,000 seat sports arena. Uh, Graham was angry that the ABA had granted the expansion franchise to Bloom and not him, so he retaliated by refusing to lease the sports arena to the Conquistadors. Uh, Out of necessity, the Conquistadors played at Peterson Gym on the campus of San Diego State. Uh, Peterson Gym had a capacity of about 3,000 and looked like a high school gymnasium, but uh, as Leonard kind of sold it, uh, or sold it rather, uh, the fans could get very close to the action. So that was a, a great selling point for the Conquistadors. Um, and before the second season, uh, Bloom and the Conquistadors captured the attention of the entire basketball world. Uh, they signed Los Angeles Lakers superstar Wilt Chamberlain to a $600,000 per year contract to play and coach for the team. Uh, Bloom told the San Diego uh, faithful, uh, Wilt's my player coach with an emphasis on player. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. Uh, you can find them out as well, uh, where they sort of distributed media photos showing Wilt wearing the, the, the Conquistadors uniform, holding an ABA ball. They're ready to go. It's all set. Uh, November 7th, 1973, Bloom uh, proposed a 20,000-seat arena in a $200 million development in uh, Spurman uh, Chula Vista, and it failed by a mere 294 votes out of 19,000 cast in a special referendum. So very, very close uh, to do that on... Uh, November 10th, the league, uh, the ABA, ordered Bloom to begin preliminary investigations into moving the team northward to Los Angeles. Uh, and then much of the 73-74 season was overshadowed by the team. Uh, you know, rumors that the team was going to move to Los Angeles. Uh, publicist Anne Steely, um he resigned uh, midseason saying that when I try to make an appointment for someone to interview Wilt, he's always too busy. The guy is just impossible to work with. Of course, the Wilt thing did not work out. Uh, he was not allowed to play for the team. He was only available to coach, and he was just not a very willing coach whatsoever. Uh, a month into the season, Dilly reminded Coach uh, Chamberlain that the team picture had not been taken yet. When Wilt responded that it was too early and that there would be significant changes on the roster, Dilly decided that was it for me. And yeah, that was just a, just a mess. The Wilt thing did not work. I mean, it makes I, honestly, it's not a bad idea to do that. And I, I would have been definitely on board with, with with seeing whatever he could do. But the idea that he was going to be a player while still under contract and, and, and stuff, it just didn't work all that well. And as a coach, he just was not very interested in, in sitting on the bench and, and coaching. So uh, that kind of sunk the entire franchise and and at least uh, Dr. Leonard Bloom's uh you know, tenure as the owner of that team. Absolutely, yeah. And we have a little. Bit, we're gonna have a little bit more in a future episode on Wilt's time in San Diego and, and whether you know if he had been able to play, whether that would have been able to make much of a difference for the um, for the ABA. But uh, we'll get to that another time. Um, next owner is uh, we're gonna look at some of the NBA owners now. Uh, Paul Snyder of the uh, Buffalo Braves. Uh, many local fans viewed him as a greedy man who sold the Braves to profiteer from John Y. Brown no, for an easy score, knowing they would be relocated. Um, uh, although you know, there was some, there's some s- split in that where he, some people actually think that he may have saved the Braves and spared the NBA from embarrassment years before their demise. Um, 
and he actually was the owner. He, um, you know, he was 33 years old when he uh, took over the team in 1970, um, and um, he was able to. Um, he was really instrumental in being able to, uh, you know, build the team and finance the team. It was kind of a situation where. Um, you know, maybe the finances, you know, started to get really expensive for him once the team started to have some success. They had um, three rookies of the year in a row from 74 to 76, um, Bob McAdoo, Ernie DiGorio, and Adrian Dantley. And McAdoo was MVP in 75, and then Randy Smith was also a key player there. So they did have some good times, but um, they ended up having to trade away um, McAdoo and Dantley for financial reasons they later would get very briefly get Moses Malone from the um, from the um, Portland Trailblazers and then would sell him for a couple of first round picks and a bunch of cash. So um, so they had to unfortunately have like a bunch of financially you know motivated moves. And then as we talked about yeah. before, um, the team was sold to um, to John Y. Brown, who ended up taking the team to um, eventually you know have, having that franchise swapped with the uh, with the Clippers with um, with Irv Levin. So um uh, so yeah, he sort of was another one of these owners who kind of like seemed like they were like in over their head to um uh, to you know to uh, be able to you know wanted to maybe do the right thing but was unable to uh, do so and he um he he paid for four million dollars for the team and then unfortunately only was sold it for I believe five hundred thousand dollars so not a not a great financial deal for him no and and a lot of the issues too again you you kind of have to get a frame of reference for the NBA at this time. Even, you know, we talk about the ABA as this wild league or whatever. The NBA was still kind of working through their issues as well. And one of the big issues with this team and with Buffalo is at the Braves home arena, the Memorial Auditorium, they didn't get first dibs on dates. The NHL's Buffalo Sabres did. And then after that, the Kinesis uh, College uh, got their dibs on the dates. So Snyder was kind of left with days during the week and some weekends. And that didn't really work for the NBA. So the NBA couldn't finalize the schedule until those other teams, the Sabres and, and the university finished theirs. And it just caused a lot of issues and it just, it never worked out. Like, you, you know, Snyder, I, I think there was a quote in one of the articles I read that he was like, well, why can't the college play during the day? Like we want to play at night. And the college was like booking Saturday nights and stuff like that, just because they had the ability to it. Cause why not? If we can, we will. And the Snyder was left with, yeah, doing weekdays and, 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 and like weekend afternoons or whatever. So attendance just was never good in Buffalo, uh, mostly because of that reason. Yeah. And he couldn't secure another arena deal as well because it wasn't that easy to kind of snap your fingers and say, hey, build me an arena like it is now. So uh, that sunk them for sure. Yeah, and changing demographics in the 70s as well with, um, you know, the arenas just being more dependent on white collar, um, you know, of companies buying luxury boxes when they didn't have luxury boxes in, but getting the, the ticket base through, you know, selling them through companies sure. and stuff. And then, you know, they just, it talked about very well in breaks of the game of you know how that another reason why things didn't work out so well Buffalo yeah and, and, and Buffalo not really a big boom town at that point right either. I mean that was the, they were going through their own you know struggles economically and, and like you said demographics changing as sure. well in the entire city yeah. so all right so move on to Jack Kent Cook of Los Angeles uh, we'll start with him uh, in 1951 uh, we'll start kind of back with how he came here uh, he was a uh, Canadian media entrepreneur and he ventured into sports uh, he acquired the Toronto Maple Leafs baseball club they were a baseball team first uh and he's well known similar to kind of st louis brown's owner and chicago white Sox owner bill veck of making games into kind of entertainment special promotion celebrity appearances that sort of stuff um he actually won executive of the year minor league executive of the year uh in 1952 and was well known as a guy who hey he knows how to market this stuff it's pretty good uh 1965 he purchases the la lakers for five million dollars 
Um, under his ownership, they moved from the Los Angeles Memorial Sports Arena to the Forum, and he changed their colors from royal and light blue to the current purple, which is referred to as, of course, Forum Blue and Gold. Uh, a little bit of a backstory on that. Uh, Cook told the public commission that ran the uh, LA Sports Arena that the lease terms the Lakers were to play there, or, or the lease terms they'd agreed to were unacceptable. They would need to be changed, or he would build his own arena. They all laughed at him, so he said, well, screw you, I'm building my own arena, and he built the Forum in Inglewood. So definitely worked out well. Um, He's well known for, you know, acquiring Will Chamberlain and or being one of the driving forces of of the Lakers trading for Will Chamberlain. Uh, he won an NBA title. He, he, he so he in June 1968 he had them uh, or, 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 or encouraged them to acquire Will Chamberlain. So uh, that led to him being so confident in Game Seven in the 1969 Finals, as we know, a famous upset by the Boston Celtics. Uh, he planned the victory celebration. He knew where the balloons were going to be. He put balloons in the rafters. He got champagne ready. He had everything ready to go. Uh, but unfortunately, the Celtics had much, much different plans and, you know, a, a huge upset that we will talk about or have talked about a lot on this show and, and, and we'll probably continue to talk about many times forward. Uh, and then he never got a chance to enjoy the magic uh, Kareem years as an owner. He sold the Lakers uh, in 1979 to Jerry Buss for $67.5 million, which is not a bad <laughs> return on investment. Uh, this was the largest transaction in sports history. Uh, but mostly he probably would have stayed, but he had a gigantic divorce settlement of uh, nearly $40 million at the time which was the largest uh, divorce settlement in history and needed the money very quick. So he sold it to Jerry Buss for $67 million. Uh, but all in all, uh, the Lakers during his ownership years, they reached uh, seven NBA Finals and won, of course, the 1972 NBA Finals. So not a bad run for, uh, uh, for Cook. Yeah, uh, he was. it's more for him that he was known for treating people really poorly and being incredibly arrogant. There's a story uh, from after they won the 72 um, championship each Laker was paid a playoff bonus of $1,500 each, which was significantly less than the $5,000 each player had received in 71 when they didn't even make it to the finals. And then Cook also refused to give Coach Bill Sharman a playoff bonus, insisting that the players should compensate Sharman on their own. And um, this led to a really there, – there was a disaster at the end-of-season banquet where none of the players were willing to even speak with Jack Hancock. And um, – West uh, Jerry West would really be angry with Kent uh, with Kent Cook about this, and would eventually lead to a situation where he felt like you know um, Cook lied to him. He would hold out of training camp and um, would find out that uh, Chamberlain was making more money than he, he was, even though you know West he told he was told that he was the, you know the, at least shared being the, the highest player of the um they thought that both were being paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars when Chamberlain was actually being paid four hundred thousand dollars a year and then West basically quit the team and there was a lawsuit between the teams. So it was very contentious mm-hmm. on that end. So so yeah so so Ken Cook, you know, he actually ran the Lakers fairly well during the time when he owned them and obviously creating the uh, forum and all those things were you know it wasn't a bad owner but by any stretch of the imagination, he was just a very, um, he was a very arrogant owner who like the, like the alienate his players and, um, you, you know, was, uh, was definitely sort of a, um, uh, he was a very fussy uh, man as well. And very like, <laughs> there, there's an interesting, um, there's also one other story where, um, because uh, he's still on the team when they draft or when before they drafted Magic, but when they were, I believe this was before they drafted, but they were meeting him. And then, you know, Cook was, they were at some fancy restaurant and Magic, he, did, he just wanted a hamburger. You know, he wasn't really comfortable in that situation. And then uh, uh, Cook basically just berated him for like ordering a hamburger. Like, how dare you order a hamburger? Just like had no concept of, you know, Magic came from a different world and that, you know, had a different thing and that, you know, he didn't appreciate this, you know, this hoity toity stuff that Cook was all about. So, not, not a people person is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, not at yeah. all. 
So next we have we just speaking of people first. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> yeah. we decided to throw uh, Ted Stepien in here, even though he took over the Lakers in, or excuse me the the Cavs in 1980 and lasted until 83. So a little outside of the official 70s, but we're not afraid to do that here. So um, he uh, he was an advertising businessman, and um, in an interview in December 1980. He said, "No team should be all white, and no team should be all black either. That's what bothers me about the NBA. You've got a situation here where blacks represent little more than five percent of the market, yet most teams are at least seventy-five percent black. Um, so that was, and then also, blacks don't buy many tickets, and they don't buy many of the products advertising TV. Let's face it, running an NBA team is like running any other business, and those kind of factors have to be considered. So, I guess, uh, I guess the Hawks owners later, when they would have those, uh, you know, emails, um, you know, that would." expressing right. uh not quite as coded versions of the sentiment i guess they were inspired by that so um <laughs> which is a pretty incredibly thing to say in public even in 1980 so um right yeah even the like even like 50s you're like yeah that's cringy but like but 1980 is like all right <laughs> like really yeah, like you, you should be know any better by that yeah, point you should like, be smarter about your you know even yeah. if you're racist you should be smarter enough to not be so super public about it at that point but yeah, uh, so as far as how he ran the team in... Um, eight- <laughs> great. Other, other than that, he was a PR nightmare, but he ran the team great. Yeah, in, right? in 81 and 82, he <laughs> he fired three head coaches and hired oh. four. Um, and um, I, they, in, at one point, they, the Cavs traded away five consecutive first-round picks, which, you know, was led the uh, to the Stepien rule, which lasts to this day, which, you know, a team cannot trade its first-round pick in consecutive years in most <laughs> it's situations. the greatest thing ever. And then... Um, it's got to be great having a rule named after you where it says, like, please just stop being dumb. Like, just don't kill your team. Like, just stop. Like, just chill. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, Brooklyn really tried to break this rule. They they wanted they, to, but yeah. uh, as we knew, <laughs> that's when I first heard of this rule is when Brooklyn, <laughs> when the Nets were, all right, come on, we got to trade every No, no, just... Calm down, guys, and, and as we still know. But, yeah, just a fantastic rule. Uh, five consecutive first-round picks is just unbelievable. Yes, and uh, eventually the, the the team actually froze – or the NBA actually froze the team's trading rights for preventing him from giving up a- any of the rest of the team's picks for the rest of the 80s and the 90s. Um, the free <laughs> this, is no, this is in 1980, by the way, where they said even through the 90s, yes. stop trading picks. Yes. Like, you cannot trade any more picks. The, stop. The freeze officially ended after 82, but then all trades were required the approval of the league's director of operations after 82 <laughs> and then um during his tenure as Cavs owner the Cavs went 66 and 180 had five different coaches and had losses of 15 million dollars so there there was a threat but other than that he was yeah, great <laughs> it, there was a talk that they were gonna try to move to, to, to toronto at, at one point but that was averted and they were of course able to stay in cleveland right other than losing a lot of money losing team having no pr and being a horrible racist everything else was great yes, about him yes exactly uh, he, he, he had those awesome great. sunglasses that you <laughs> he did have fantastic yeah. sunglasses yeah. you can google it right now and you can see they are yeah. top 10 sunglasses of all time exactly. but uh, yeah he is a bottom 10 of all time uh, owner for sure uh, irv levin We'll move on now. He's uh, he was an American film producer and business executive. Uh, he and uh, attorney Harold A. Lipton purchased the Boston Celtics for three point seven million dollars. Uh, the sale was initially rejected by the NBA as a result of conflict of interest because Levin, who was an executive of the National General Film Corporation, um, he had executive or there were directors under him uh, with sort of Sham Schulman and Eugene Klein, and they owned the Seattle SuperSonics. So they wondered if there would be kind of a conflict of interest there of having you know an executive and and director 
directors and all that sort of stuff of the same company, owning different teams. Uh, so Levin and Lipton were forced to sell their shakes to Robert Schmertz uh, for $3.95 million. For, uh, and this came with an option for uh, the two to repurchase half of the Celtics stock later. Um, anyway, after two years of litigation, Levin and Lipton were able to exercise their option. Um, and then 10 months later, they purchased the remaining stock. So they got it anyway um, after all that. Uh, we talked about this a little bit, and you've also talked about this um, on a, a past episode in 1978, Levin and Lipton swapped their shares of the Celtics with John Y. Brown, and um, they then became the owners of the Buffalo Braves. Uh, the Braves relocated to San Diego, where they became the San Diego Clippers, and on May 4th, 1981, Levin sold the Clippers to another great man, Donald Sterling, for $13.5 million. Um, and, and people might wonder, hey, why would you trade Boston? Why would you do that? Uh, one of the interesting things is Levin, um, you know, who had decent attendance in, in Boston, and you know, the team missed the playoffs in 1977, but, or, or 1978, rather, uh, but he wanted a new franchise in San Diego because, if you remember, I said he was an executive of film. So he wanted to be near his clo- his home, which was in L.A. He wanted to be near or close to other West Coast business interests. So he said, yeah, you know, you can take Boston because that's way too far away from where I want to be. I'll take San Diego. That'll work fine for me. Uh, of course, didn't work out all that well, but he was able to make it, of course, you know, $13.5 million out of the deal selling the Clippers to Donald Sterling, which um, in retrospect, maybe it would have been better if he didn't. But, hey, can't change history. So, yes. so. Uh, so the our last owner that we're going to look into is uh, is Franklin Muley, who was the uh, owner of the Warriors for 24 years, actually, from when they moved to uh, San Francisco in um, in 64 uh, up until the uh, 80s. And uh, they did actually they, they won a championship in 75 and had three NBA Finals experience appearances. He also uh, was. Um, he played a role in breaking down racial barriers in the NBA and encouraged the team's front office to sign players regardless of cover of color. Uh, Ten of the 12 players on the title team were African-American, as was Al Adels and, and uh, his assistant Joe Rogers. They were the uh, Al Adels was the first um, African-American coach other than Bill Russell to win a, a championship. And um, he however, his personal style was uh, you, you call it eccentric, I guess. Um Instead of wearing, you know, a business dress, he was heavily bearded. He favored jeans, Hawaiian shirts, and a deerstalker cap. Um, and when events became too complicated or he needed time to think or avoid the press, this is from a New York Times um, obit, he would simply disappear for a few days. Uh, he kept a number of motorcycles, his preferred mode of transportation, and occasionally forgot where he left them. So, um, <laughs> This is a problem you often uh, wrestle with, Jason, right? You, you, you just drive your motorcycle and you have no idea where you left it and you just go, ah, whatever. I'll get another one. I know you always, you're always telling me, I'm going to be a little late to get on the show. Exactly. I left my motorcycle somewhere and I don't know where it is. A- absolutely. You know, I, I, that, that <laughs> and I leave, leave my car in the parking lot. Those are two tr- things that I have uh, trouble with. <laughs> You know, uh, I have to hit the beep, you know, to try to, you know, figure out that is that is tough. Yeah. Grocery store uh, car finds is, is, is one of the most difficult things in the world. Yeah. So. Um, so after the Warriors won the title in 75, he put the trophy in the backseat of his sports car for a year, taking out whenever he visited a public place so that uh, fans could see it up close. So he, he's definitely an interesting personality. He, he is sort of teased a lot in essay articles. I feel like whenever we've done research on the on the Warriors from this time, Rick Barry or whoever, he always, there's always a line about you know uh, sort of joking around with him. But he was he was a shrewd businessman and you know and and did seem like actually a pretty decent guy. He um, had an interesting relationship with um, Rick Barry where you know he kind of felt a little bit betrayed that Rick uh, left the team and then like pursued 
getting Barry back like, you know, like Captain Ahab in the in the White Whale. You know, he's tr- trying to, um, you know, he, he did all this, you know, legal fight to get him back. And, you know, there was these lawsuits and eventually he the Barry signed a contract with the Warriors. But then he had to go back to the ABA for a few years because, you know, he had a valid contract with uh with the Squires and later the Nets. And then um, finally he comes back to the Warriors. And then there's this, you know, the kind of feel good story of, you know, Barry finally coming back and then bringing the championship a few years later with this team that uh, of sort of, um, you know, of, of underdogs. And um, so it's just sort of interesting to, um, he, he, he was, he was an interesting person. That's for sure. Yeah, he absolutely. And, and, the, and the Warriors, I mean, they were looking like they might not even survive as well. I know the, because uh, he was a part of local investors initially uh, and they were going to back out and he basically purchased, the rest of the shares so that he could become the sole owner and he wasn't a guy that made a ton of money i mean he, he was he was a rich man of course but you know he basically just did like radio uh, i think he was an owner of some radio stations and stuff so for him he basically poured all of his money to just keep the team there and, and eventually uh you know ended up as you said being super successful and you know just a just a, a pretty decent guy i mean of all the owners we talk about if his eccentric thing is he kind of dressed a little weird but he's a very good businessman and, and and what appears to be a very good guy as well just all around yeah yeah exactly so uh, all right. Well, thanks for uh, checking us out. You can find us at uh, horrorproxism.com. Uh, if you're enjoying what you're hearing, uh, please uh, leave us a rating and review on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. And you can give us any feedback uh, you would like on our Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s series or whatever you would like. Um, you can uh, We're on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So uh, thanks for listening. And until next time, we'll see you again soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.